Welcome to Crimes and Cocktails, a podcast where we explore true crime while drinking a customized cocktail created by us, your bartenders. Hey, I'm Tabitha. I'm Katie. Just a quick heads up, this show contains sensitive and graphic material that might not be for everyone. If you don't enjoy in-depth true crime, humor about true crime, and drinking, please don't continue. We want to be respectful of the victims in these crimes, but as for the criminal, we just don't give a shit. And we're back. We made it. Yay. And uh, that tiny little tin voice you can hear is Katie, uh, caller number nine. Uh, no, actually, we accidentally deleted the first 10 minutes of this podcast, and that's why you don't drink and podcast all the time. But <laughs> we had to re-record, and unfortunately, Katie is calling us from Sacramento. So apologize about the first 10 minutes of this. It's going to sound a little bit like we're going through a car wash or something, but... I think we'll get through it okay. Yep. <laughs> so this is episode three of our series on the Golden State Killer. Tonight we are discussing his early life and personal life outside of the crimes, and we're going to take that into his arrest and trial, which concluded actually in the middle of the summer of this year. And I'm not going to lie, even though we re-recorded this, I am still drinking our Golden State Chiller, although instead of blackberries and strawberries, it's just straight bourbon at this point. But if you're looking to drink our actual cocktail, the Golden State Chiller, it can be found on our Instagram, which is at Crimes and Cocktails. Awesome. So now that we know who the Golden State Killer is, or more rather of what he's done, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about his personal life. Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. was born November 8th, 1945 in Bath, New York. His father was Joseph James D'Angelo Sr., and his mother was Kathleen Louise DeGroat. His father was in the Air Force, and the family moved often for his job. D'Angelo had an older sister, Rebecca, a younger sister, Constance, and a younger brother named John. At 9 or 10, D'Angelo was playing with his 7-year-old sister, Constance, in an abandoned Air Force warehouse in Germany, when two airmen walked in and forced D'Angelo to watch as they raped her. When D'Angelo... It's awful. (laughs) When D'Angelo and his sister told their parents about the incident, they were told not to talk about it again. D'Angelo's father was abusive, and he would regularly assault his mother. And after one particular violent instance of abuse in Germany, the military police warned Joseph Sr. that he would be kicked out of the Air Force if he touched his wife again. Do they mean, like, sexual touching or just touching in general? Um... He might actually wear gloves. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see how that marriage can work. Or maybe it does work. (laughs) I'm guessing if it was violent. Yeah, um, no. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think they really control being like, hey, you can't. I guess it's not 2020. Six feet, six feet away. (laughs) Yeah, six feet away with a mask. Uh, but, uh, Which, sorry yeah. to interrupt, but I just watched South Park Pandemic ep- a special episode. Did you see it? <laughs> no, I haven't. Oh, it's you have to watch it. Um, it's uh, obviously very South Park and, you know, not for everyone. But yeah. Cartman is, like, going around with, like, a pole. And he's, like, even to his mom, he's like, six feet, mom, six feet. <laughs> <laughs> like with the Grinch song. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> back to him beating his wife. Yeah, um, so the Air Force warned him not to touch her again, um, but their mother was also abusive. She would hit D'Angelo and his siblings as well, um, so they obviously were not in the best home environment. Um, I'd say that. that. And experiencing that. Um, and so the incident with his sister... And then the pattern of abuse started by his parents uh, both played a role in his development into the monster that we know him as today. Constance's son, Jesse Ryland, actually said that his uncle didn't seem like a killer. He was actually pretty nice and normal. But after he was caught, he did say that it clicked that his mother's rape might have led to um, D'Angelo's later Uh, behavior. 
I'm not going to say if anything kind of clicks that he was a nice and normal guy. When somebody's really nice, it doesn't click later on that something like, oh, okay, this guy's been nothing nice but nice to me my entire life, but no, you know what, now it makes sense that he's a rapist, but... Yeah, killer. Hmm. No, I don't think it works that way. (laughs) No, your uncle had to have shown signs of, like, being kind of weird at some point, or maybe, like, you didn't really know him or you weren't around him. I don't know. I just... Everyone's got that one creepy uncle. I never would have guessed, but to say like, oh, you know, actually, that checks out. Like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, never thought about it in that light. But yeah, huh? (laughs) Oh my gosh! Uh, After his parents divorced in the '60s, Kathleen took the kids and moved to the Sacramento area, and eventually remarried. While Joseph Senior went off to South Korea, partied, retired, and met a new wife, and got three new children. With guess what? all the same names rebecca joseph jr and constance again what the hell (laughs) this is a joseph jr (laughs) 0.20 rebecca (laughs) 2.0 yeah i messed up that last one (laughs) anyways d'angelo attended middle school in rancho cordova and high school in Folsom between 1961 and 1962 he played and he played baseball he dropped out of high school before his junior year and got his GED in 1965. And by the way, we're posting our Instagram today. It's actually D'Angelo's high school yearbook picture. He looks like a swell guy. An absolute swell guy. Yes. It's surprising how normal he looks. Actually, no offense to the guy all the way to the right, but that guy looks kind of like weirdo. <laughs> okay, so honestly, I thought that guy might be him at first, because he was kind of like, he got those steep... He has those eyes. crazy eyes! <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I was just like, that guy looks like a little toad. <laughs> like, that must be I'm him. so sorry if the person <laughs> related to that guy is listening. <laughs> um, but yeah, I totally thought it was that guy all the way to the right. So. I mean, I guess he looks like a celebrity, but... Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, and then I realized it, who D'Angelo actually was in the, that those uh, yearbook photos. And I was yeah, like, oh, okay. yeah. Like I saw the police photo. We also have that posted today, and it's like, okay, that's who he is. Yeah, I was nothing like him. They were way off. <laughs> Uh, He joined the Navy in 1964 and served in the Vietnam War, attended Sierra College in Rockland, California in 1968, uh, the year my mom was born. And he went to Sacramento State uh, in 1971 and graduated with a degree in criminal justice. So in the early 1970s, a cat burglar was in Rancho Cordova. Uh, He would steal single earrings, which, you know... Obviously, you already know that that's what D'Angelo was doing as well. Trademark. Um, yeah. It would take photographs, um, small amounts of money, and sometimes killed household pets because um, he was an asshole. And yeah. Well, and also, I mean, killing pets is like one of the first acts of violence most killers commit. It's like yeah, testing it's it out. Yeah, it's one of the signs of serial killers, just killing small animals. Um and those crimes actually have not been tied to D'Angelo, but his brother-in-law, Jim Huddle, believes that it was him testing out, like, what he could get away with. Um, totally believe it's him. It's the single earring. It's, you know, killing the household <laughs> pet. We talked about in... Um, it's not like it's episodes. 1999 yet, where, you know, you only punch the left ear or whatever. <laughs> right? It's just like, he was a, a man before his time. <laughs> <laughs> but, um... Yeah, I mean, it, it totally it totally sounds like him. And in his book, Jim Huddle also said D'Angelo would bring up the East Area Rapist during the time crimes were being committed. He even asked Huddle what he would do if he saw the East Area Rapist in his home. Huddle was worried about him so because um, he had a wife and two daughters, and he asked D'Angelo to help check his house for security since at this time, D'Angelo was a cop. <laughs> Can you imagine being scared of the East Area Rapist and then having the East Area Rapist check your house? Like, yeah. oh my god. That is just... And then he's a cop. <laughs> and he's a cop. Like, I mean, somebody you should be, you know, trusting. And uh, That's right. During the early years of his crimes, D'Angelo was a cop. 
he was working in Exeter, California, and he was with the burglary unit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, he also uh, didn't get along with his neighbors. He had outbursts and threatened them. Neighbors said he would wander outside and yell, like, yell fuck in the street. I mean, Just, you don't you do not do that? No, no. Um, sometimes I feel like doing it, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> like every day of this year? <laughs> like, yeah, pretty much. Um, I, I mean, I went on the street that uh, D'Angelo lived on and his house, and I, I felt like getting out and yelling fuck, so, I mean... <laughs> What that poor house ever do to you, huh? <laughs> I know. No, it's actually a really quiet neighborhood. I think something was up. <laughs> he also liked to watch gory horror movies and would talk to the screen through clenched teeth like he did during his attacks. Hmm. I mean, yeah. what a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. sorry, sorry, sorry. What a weirdo. <laughs> Uh, he wasn't a cop for too long, though. I mean, it's funny. So he worked in the burglary unit, but I'm pretty sure he actually got let go after, what, two, three years for stealing a hammer and dog repellent. Yeah, so he worked at the Exeter um, Police Department, and then after that, he moved to the uh, Auburn um police department and that's when he got fired yeah stealing the hammer yeah and what they did was in auburn they basically were going to do this whole you know write-up report whatever or he could just choose to be let go and he chose to get you know just move on which obviously he had bigger plans and oddly enough one of the things that he was caught for stealing was dog repellent which if you remember in our first episode we talked about there was a really weird scent that victims would say he had Mm -hmm. It was dog repellent. He was spraying himself down with that to catch repel dogs, which honestly, I didn't know that was a real thing. I'm thinking of like the 1960s Batman where he gets Mm -hmm. the shark repellent and he like sprays it and the shark's all bam. Yeah, so I'm thinking about it. I'm like, dog repellent? Is that really a thing? Like they have the the bear repellent for when you go hiking or camping. This Uh, is something similar. Um, but yeah, so really he was only works. a cop from 1973 until he got fired in 1979. Yeah, so, you know, listen to that because there were some people that were saying, wait, 79? Yeah, 1979. I didn't know it was that late. So he was a cop when he was committing rapes. Yeah, so uh, six years. Okay, you know what? Never mind. <laughs> I think, I, for some reason, I thought he actually got let go from the police a lot earlier than that. Well, okay, so let's move on. So... After college, you know, or while he's attending college, I should say, he met the infamous Bonnie. So one of the things we didn't really talk about uh, during his rapes, um, and he would, you know, during his rape, he would rape the woman and then he would leave the room you know cook something eat something come back and rape again sometimes he'd go in the corner of the room and he would just sob and cry and a few of the victims thought he said i hate you mommy mommy but one of the victims said no he said bonnie i hate you bonnie i'm sorry bonnie fuck you bonnie well turns out that he had actually met a bonnie in his life and was engaged to a bonnie Uh, Bonnie has given an interview since, you know, it's come out that D'Angelo is the Golden State Killer. She's given an interview to the LA Times about her very short relationship with D'Angelo. And so the information we have here is from that article. D'Angelo met Bonnie Caldwell while the two of them attended Sierra College in Rockland, California. She was an 18-year-old sophomore and D'Angelo was 23 years old and a Vietnam veteran. Bonnie worked at a science lab, and D'Angelo would stop by to talk to her, and they started dating a week after they met. He took her on his motorcycle, let her drive his cars, and taught her how to hunt. In later years, Bonnie said D'Angelo got along well with her family and would often come over to the family farm. In later years, when she was questioned about their sex life, Bonnie said she was never forced or tied up, but D'Angelo was... um, he often the sex was exhausting and painful because D'Angelo, he would he would kind of carry it out for hours and he was oblivious to how painful it was to her he would 
he would have sex with her and then he would stop right before climaxing leave and then want to come back and start again and this would go on for hours it was very similar to his rapes actually and she hated it i mean i would (laughs) (laughs) anyway they got engaged in may of 1970 and the ring was off-putting interesting i wonder i actually kind of wonder what this ring looked like now d'angelo claimed that he had brought the diamond back from vietnam but it wasn't something he could afford have you seen the ring um, I have not seen a picture of the ring, but when Bonnie described it, she said it was a thin uh, gold band with a single uh, large diamond. It was huge, apparently. She had to, when she was wearing her gloves in the science lab, she would have to turn it around so it faced her palm, otherwise it would rip through the gloves. I wonder if he stole it. That's what I'm guessing. <laughs> I feel like he probably stole it. Yeah, she felt like it wasn't something he could afford, so I'm, I'm mm. sure that he did steal it. Yeah. Bonnie said D'Angelo seemed to feel superior to those around him, and he was above the rules and the law, and he would often do small things to break the rules, like illegally hunt deer out of season or spear fish in Folsom Lake. Ooh. His carelessness <laughs> with the law bothered her. In 1971, when they attended Sacramento State, D'Angelo was failing a class he needed. He asked her to cheat for him, and she refused. He kept pressing the matter over and over again and said she was obligated to cheat for him since they were engaged. I mean, pretty sure that's the rule, right? (laughs) She called him to her parents' house and told him that she was breaking it off, and he insisted they were meant for each other, but she gave him back the ring. A few nights later, Bonnie was sleeping in her room when she heard someone tapping on the window. When she opened the drapes, it was D'Angelo with a gun, and he told her to get dressed. They were going to Reno to get married. She ran to her parents' room to tell her father what was happening, and he made her hide in the bathroom. Her father talked to D'Angelo for about two hours outside before coming back to tell her that he had left, and they never spoke about it again. Bonnie dropped out of school for a semester because she was afraid of seeing D'Angelo, and a year later, she married an accountant. She saw D'Angelo one more time in a shopping mall but avoided him and didn't hear him hear about him again until her ex-husband called her in 2018 to tell her that Joe D'Angelo was the East Area Rapist. So I was um, reading about Bonnie, and she said that her... Um, she wondered why her dad didn't turn in D'Angelo for coming to their house with a gun and, you know, trying to kidnap her. Um, and her father was also a veteran. Um, so, and he knew that D'Angelo wanted to be a cop. So he figured that if he called the cops on uh, D'Angelo, that would ruin any chances for his future. Um, so he just decided to let it go. Oh, yeah, so Bonnie, the, that, that's one thing to it. I mean, we kind of talked about him being a cop already, but his relationship with Bonnie happened before he was an officer. Yes. Yeah, he, they were still in school at this yeah. point. So now we're going to move on to his relationship with Sharon Huddle, who would later become his wife. Um, not much is known about their relationship. Uh, Sharon has stayed out of the media as much as possible and has stated that she's not giving interviews. What we know about her relationship with D'Angelo is from a few newspaper articles and comments here and there from other family members, uh, not from her own mouth. Sharon Marie Huddle began dating Joe D'Angelo in 1971 when she was 17, almost 18 years old. And soon after D'Angelo met her family, he and Sharon's brother, James, who wrote the book we were talking about earlier, became roommates in Citrus Heights. I think D'Angelo was probably like 27. He was 27 when they married, um, when she was 20, so he was a lot older than her. I mean, not a lot, but a lot. Still, like, if if I had a 17-year-old daughter and she brought home some 20-something-year-old Vietnam veteran, (laughs) I would be a little like, who's this dude? Vietnam veterans, we, you know, respect you, but you're weird. (laughs) Yeah. If I'd been a World War II veteran, I was kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, D'Angelo had just recently got out of his relationship with Bonnie Caldwell and once told James that Bonnie was the love of his life, although he was dating James's sister, which is like, (laughs) if my boyfriend told one of my brothers that he was in love with, like, his ex, I'd be like, hold up. (laughs) 
<laughs> hold up. <laughs> no, like, seriously, I would be like, this isn't going to work out. But um, James actually never told his sister. Okay, so James said that. James is the worst person here. Just kidding. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, D'Angelo and Huddle married on November 1st, 1973, and uh, Sharon was 20, and D'Angelo was 27. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's, 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 like, about how old my parents are. Yeah, know? that's okay. I mean, she's 20, so... It's, no. uh, it's it's just weird. It's different times. It's different times, man. Yeah. <laughs> but it really is, though, because, like, now, like you said, yeah, if my 17-year-old daughter was dating some guy that was, like, 25, I'd be like, what the hell? Like, no. But back then... It was pretty common. It was pretty common, yeah. yeah. I mean, my parents met in the 80s, and my mom was, like, 15 or 16 when she met my dad, and he's about seven years older, so... Yeah. It's just different times. Yep. So, um, at this point, Joe was working as a police officer, and Sharon was studying to get into law school. The couple lived in Exeter, which is where D'Angelo worked as a cop, and it was during the early years of their... pig. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Do you find this particular cop? (laughs) It was during the early years of their marriage that D'Angelo began his crime spree as the Visalia Ransacker, which was nearby his place of work. So Visalia was pretty close to Exeter, which was also another small town, so it was easy for him to just, you know... Drive on over there while Sharon was studying to get into law school. I also have to say, <laughs> if he was, like, a police officer at this time and he was in charge of the burglary, like, department, yeah. wouldn't you be like, dude, you're doing a really shitty job. Like, yeah. we have this ransacker that's, like, burglarized, like, 120 homes. What are you doing? Yeah. Like, obviously, you, you shouldn't be working in this unit. What if he was doing it, like, on the clock? Like, I mean, I'm, I, um, I've read things that they say they think he was doing it in between, like, going to places he was supposed to actually be at. Or, like, he goes and, like, burglarizes it, and then he has to show up there, like, you know, an hour later when it's reported. Yeah, I'm sure that he had to. I actually didn't think about that until now. I'm sure that he had to report to some of his crime scenes, his own crime scenes. After somebody called, like... Maybe he was just creating work, you know? He yeah. needed more hours, he, he had a new wife. security. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get this guy a Happy wife, happy wife, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> just kidding, no. <laughs> so, Sharon was accepted into McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, and D'Angelo started to work at the Auburn Police Department. And that's when the East Area Rapist appeared... Sharon was uh, probably too busy with law school to notice if D'Angelo was gone longer than expected, or uh, she could assume that he was working. Or she knew. Or she knew, which is a popular theory on the internet, so. Yeah, I mean. Time will tell. (laughs) Obviously, you know, we hear about a lot of serial killers and their spouses or family are like in shock in complete horror yeah. when they find this out like the BTA killer BTK killer mm-hmm. like when he was discovered his family was like oh my god yeah like, they could not believe that but sometimes I'm like how do you not know yeah I mean how do you not know or how do you at least not think like where is my husband at all these hours because this guy was stalking people I would like assume that he was having an affair yeah like, over like, you know, I mean, people. although he is a cop, so I guess the whole excuse is like, I got a lot of extra shifts this week. Yeah, there's working a lot of burglaries. Burglaries. <laughs> yeah. I can't say it. I wonder still. why. <laughs> but um, I don't know. You know, when you say burglary, I think of, was it the McDonald's? Hamburglar. The Hamburglar, <laughs> yeah. Burglar. I'm also hungry. Burglaries. So. <laughs> <laughs> I would burgle a burger right now. <laughs> Pretty hungry. (laughs) Anyways. In 1980, they purchased a home in Citrus Heights, and then they also rented a home in Long Beach, which was for Sharon's work. Must be nice. Right? (laughs) (laughs) I could barely rent my one place. Do we know what he did after he got let go from the police? Yeah, he was a diesel mechanic. What? He was a mechanic on, like, big trucks for, like, shipping and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, Such a weird, like, career change there, I know. too. I know. Huh. Um, so, where was I? Oh, oh 1980. Long Beach. Yeah, yeah. 1980. Sorry. Long Beach. 
they uh, Sharon got hired um, in Los Angeles, and so they had to have uh, two homes. D'Angelo was still working in Citrus Heights while Sharon was working in Long Beach. Uh, so D'Angelo went back and forth between the two to visit, um, which was when D'Angelo would, you know, strike in Southern California. Yeah. That explains why there's, like, gaps, I feel like, too. Yeah. You know, because, like, his first attack was in October in Goleta, so he was probably honestly driving. That's so weird. Like, yeah. he was he was hours away from Long Beach, so he yeah. must have been just driving down the one. Well, you know, you tell your wife, oh, I'm going to start driving at 5 p.m., but you really got on the road earlier. Oh, yeah. so creepy. But then he goes back and attacks that same neighborhood yep. two months later for Christmas or New Year's. Mm-hmm. It's just like, ugh, so creepy. So, their oldest daughter, Misha, was born September of 1981. Their second daughter, Sasha, was born in November of 1986. Um, And that's when D'Angelo's crime started to slow down. Um, After his rape and murder of 18-year-old Janelle Cruz, which we talked about in episode two, um, was when he began to slow down. So, uh, Sharon began to build up her own divorce practice during this time, and they... They uh, stopped renting the house in Long Beach and were both back at their Citrus Heights home full time. Um, and in 1989, they had their youngest daughter. Because uh, he decided Tess. to be a family man. Yeah. Their youngest daughter is uh, Tess D'Angelo. Uh, by 1991, a very good year, the couple had separated. <laughs> and according to James Huddle, they had already been uh, sleeping in different beds. Sharon moved out of the home with the girls. Which I will say, so I actually read this one, um, I can't remember which victim it was, but when they were chasing him, it was for one of the EAR um, assaults, Mm -hmm. he hopped a fence, but when he hopped the fence, uh, they don't think he realized that there was a giant slope on the other side of the fence, so they think he actually might have injured his shoulder. Mm -hmm. And there was a report around that same time of someone going to a hospital in Sacramento with an injured shoulder, but they had a fake ID. And when they the doctors or whatever realized the ID was fake, the guy like left the hospital, this big old thing. And the EAR was on a hiatus for a few months. He wasn't doing any attacks. So there, the theory is that he injured his shoulder, tried to go to hospital to get it fixed, but he had a fake ID and caught him and he left and he just had to recuperate for a few months so he didn't do any attacks. Well, similarly, I think that he also was getting older by the time it was the late 80s. And even though, yeah, he had all these kids and stuff, I think that he was also slowing down where he knew that he couldn't just go on a hop a fence whenever mm-hmm. he wanted to or jump in a river canal and run away like that. Mm-hmm. Like, he was getting older and was like, I can't do these things and get away with it like I used to. So I think I think that's also, like, a huge part of why he was slowing down yeah. or not doing anything, I should say. Yeah. I mean, his, his... I mean, we'll get into it later, but... He continued with phone calls instead. Yeah, so he definitely wasn't just like, oh, I'm a changed man. No. Uh, so after their separation, James Huddle uh, claimed that D'Angelo would do little things to annoy his sister. Like go to their parents' house to help out his parents. Um, but the two, uh, Huddle and D'Angelo, still remained married until after D'Angelo's arrest, which many people found suspicious. Uh, once D'Angelo, um, once he was, you know, discovered, because, like, why were you just separated for 1991 to 2018? Um, but especially since Huddle was a, divor- a divorce lawyer, um, but James Huddle claimed that the pair stayed together so the girls and Sharon herself would have better health care, and because D'Angelo liked to tell people that he was married to a lawyer, um just doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is so weird to be, like, separated, living in separate houses for 20-something wow. years. Yeah. And it's, why not get a divorce? Especially, like you said, she's a freaking divorce lawyer. Like, yeah. I don't understand that at all. I just, it's so freaking weird. So, uh, Sharon has publicly spoken out twice since the arrest. 
Uh, right after the arrest, she said, my thoughts and prayers are for the victims and their families. The press has relentlessly pursued interviews with me. I will not be giving any interviews for the foreseeable future. I ask the press to please respect my privacy and that of my children. I mean, I really can't imagine what it's like to be the wife of this criminal, right? The Golden yeah. He's one of the biggest criminals in American history. I cannot even begin to think of what that is like. But on the other hand, I just feel like, how could you not... How could you not know? Yeah. I just I just don't know how you could not know. I just I just don't know. I think that it just I mean, if she didn't know, a lot of it was because they were living in separate houses for a long part of their marriage. Um And I think sometimes we choose not to know. Notice. Right? Like we know she had suspicions that he was up to something. Yeah. Whether her mind and also if you were married to somebody for that long and your mind went to like, oh maybe he's murdering somebody, like how Outland. That's like the worst case scenario. So you'd be like, oh no, that that can't be possible. Right. He must be doing something else. We uh, think something's off, but I feel like we we do that where we're like, we know something's wrong. We know they're not acting like themselves or something's weird here. But we obviously never want to jump to that level. So we, we yeah. just put it off like something's weird, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. Kind of a thing. Like you said, she probably, maybe she thought it was an affair. Yeah. I mean, that's what I would immediately, you know, jump to. But then they were already sleeping in separate beds and he left the house. It's not like she would be like, oh, why isn't he laying down right beside me? If they really were sleeping in separate beds, it would be kind of, you know, easy for him to slip in and out. Um, So the second time um, Huddle spoke out was at D'Angelo's trial during a victim impact statement. Um, Although she was clear that she did not want to distract from... um, D'Angelo's actual victims. She said, I've lost my ability to trust people. I trusted the defendant when he told me he had to work or was going pheasant hunting or going to visit his parents hundreds of miles away. When I was not around, I trusted he was doing what he told me he was doing. Now, without the ability to trust, my relationships with other people are severely impacted. I also kind of feel like this plays into what is expected of a housewife in the 70s and 80s. I mean, I know she's a working woman, so she's a little bit more modern in that, you know, aspect there. But I also feel like there's this thing from, like, you know, the 50s to probably, like, the 80s where it's, like, don't ask, don't tell kind of thing. Like, my husband's my husband. I believe what he tells me. He's the head of the household. I shouldn't be questioning him. And, um... I mean, she's, Sharon Huddle's older than, like, you know, our parents, um, but I would still consider her, like, within that same generation. Yeah. And I feel like, um, you know, the family dynamic is just so different than we are today. What I think is, would be so hard is his children. Yes. I mean, I mean, just thinking, putting my myself in the shoes of, like, one of his daughters, and I just found out that my dad was this horrible, sadistic, serial killer, mm-hmm. serial rapist. I, I don't even know what I'd be thinking. And how do you reconcile? Because, like, by accounts, he was supposed to be this great father Ugh. to them. And then how do you reconcile that image of the father that you grew up with that, you know, like took you to your sporting events or ballet or, you know, whatever they did with the man who would also go out at night and rape women and girls who were, like, your age and, like... Younger. Younger. Or, you know, just that hate for women that he must have had, but to have three daughters that he was raising. Right. The, The BTK killer, actually, his daughter, I don't know if... I think she wrote a book or something like that. But she has talked about how she just sees it as two different people she knows. Because she sees, on one hand, her father, who is this Mm -hmm. loving... And I don't know if Joseph D'Angelo is a loving father from... A lot of it doesn't sound like he was the most huggable guy. But, like, the BTK killer apparently was this Boy Scout leader, church leader, Mm -hmm. loving father at every event, and I love you, daughter, blah, blah, blah. But then he's also 
fucking terrible sadist. So yeah. she like has to disassociate the two because she's like, I can't and for your own see sanity. Them. Yeah. You kind of have to do that as a child of one of these, you know. And the thing is, from the people. from the outside, we're sitting over here like, how could you not know? Mm-hmm. How could you not know? And we're just these judgmental people. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. Oh, it is. It is crazy though, because you would. I mean, I guess hindsight's twenty twenty. Maybe there is stuff that they picked up on later, like, oh, hey, that was kind of weird that our dad did that. You know, and I've done but, that with friends that have done other things. Like, I've had friends who have gotten into drugs or something like that, and maybe yeah. I didn't pick up what they were using for a while. And then once it came out that they were using, I look back and I'm like, oh, they were being really weird that one time. Yeah. And you start looking back you like that. You just don't want to jump to the worst case. Right, right. And I'm sure that's what that, you know, some of that was. Um, and then also when he stopped, the girls were quite, you know, the girls were still pretty young in the 80s. So, um, I don't know. Although he was still making those calls that we were talking about and we'll talk more <laughs> about. <laughs> but, um, anyway, so now we are going to go into, um, D'Angelo's arrest and his trial. Um, after the arrest... Hold on. Can we just say that when he was arrested, he was cooking a roast. And yes. he was very concerned about the, the roast. roast. Yes. Like, please, officers, there's roast in my oven. Yes. And one of the victims at the trial said every year on April, I can't remember what day it was, he was actually arrested. They're like, we're going to eat a roast in your honor. <laughs> and I was like, wow, damn girl. Like, <laughs> how the, that cop who arrested him was just like, oh, we'll take care of it. I'm like, dude, <laughs> fuck your roast. Like, get in the car. You're coming with us. Well, <laughs> one of the things that I heard, one of the police reports, whatever, on the on the arrest is, you know, they had someone coming in from the back door and people coming in the front door. Mm-hmm. And a lot of serial killers or criminals that get caught later in age like that, they tend to kill themselves. So yeah. they were really worried that he was going to try and shoot himself or something like mm-hmm. that. So I think... They were like, when he's like, oh, I have a roast. They're like, we got it. Yeah. They're just like, just get Whatever him. we need to get do. Him down, get him down, get him, arrest Otherwise him. you would never know. Yeah. Like what exactly happened. And people want to get the kind of peace that they needed. So anyway, after his arrest, um, he claimed that someone was in him named Jerry that made him commit the murders. And um, D'Angelo pushed Jerry out so he could stop and have a happy life. Uh, that's possibly how he reconciled his home and family man kind of image with also being a serial killer. Um, but, you know, he obviously didn't push Jerry out enough because he was still making calls as late as 2001 to <laughs> past victims. <laughs> Actually, pretty interesting about the Jerry claim on one of the pieces of evidence that they found, um, I think they found in Sacramento, was like this map of like a construction map of like mm-hmm. a housing neighborhood project. And it looked like something that like a foreman or a construction worker would have it had little houses and a little lake. And it turned out later they found out, you know, after looking on it, that it was a map of a housing area in Stockton. And the house on there that was like covered in black was actually one of the targeted homes. Mm-hmm. But on the back of it, it had the word scribbled punishment. And then below that, it looked like the name Jerry was written on there. So it's kind so of weird creepy. because <laughs> it's so creepy because he, he comes up with this like, you know, oh, there's this guy named Jerry that's in my body. And he says this in 2018. And we kind of feel like, oh, he's just pulling this out of his ass, right? Like this is his defense, which I'm not, you know, I kind of maybe feel that way a little bit. But at the same time, if they found evidence, and they found this evidence back in the 70s. Yeah. And it had the name Jerry on there. Like, that's, that's so eerie. Like, what we talked about, uh, you know, all the way back in episode one was how D'Angelo would listen to, um, you know, the media, the news, and kind of, you know, shape himself to match that. So if anywhere in the media, if they mentioned maybe this guy must be crazy or, you know, he was running through the lawn saying like, oh, excuse me, I'm trespassing. People might um, have mentioned that maybe they thought he had schizophrenia. Mm. So this could have been another way that D'Angelo yeah. was trying to set up clues to be like, oh, look, I'm crazy. Even way back then because he was Do listening to the news. Do you think that there's a possibility that he actually could be schizophrenic? I really don't think so because it's not something you can turn on or off. Mm. Um, his family would know if he was schizophrenic yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, Definitely a yeah. psychopath. Yeah. Oh, he's crazy, but he's just on a... 
he knew what he was doing. Yeah. When I hear the name Jerry, I I just think of Jerry Seinfeld. No, <laughs> that's a positive way to think of Jerry, though. <laughs> I was thinking Rick and Morty, and how like Morty's dad Jerry is just like a total failure and everything. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I was I don't know. And he's like he has this little man named Jerry in him that makes him do things. I don't know. Side I note. just think of how like Newman says Jerry. Jerry. <laughs> so, yeah, but. Um, I know it's just, the whole Jerry thing is strange, and I don't think there's been anything that's really kind of explained that. Um, but I don't know. I think you're right, though. I think it's some car, like I don't know, just kind of separating like his past life. That was Jerry. That's not yeah. me. I'm a family that man was now. <laughs> that was Patricia. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a dad now. I have these girls I'm gonna raise and do this thing. But you know. Friday night after a few cocktails, maybe I'll prick call someone for that yeah. gratification. Let Jerry out again. Let him out to play. <laughs> Super weird. Seriously. So um, he was finally uh, discovered from a program called uh, I don't know, a Jed Match or GED Match. Um, I've heard it called Jed Match. Jed Match. Okay, yeah. perfect. Um, a. Uh, undercover online genealogical profile with um, fake names was take, um, by taking DNA from semen found at the Golden State Killers crime scenes, yeah. um, in partic- particular from Lyman and Charlene Smith's residence, um, and used it to find distant relatives matching the DNA, and aired it down and began to suspect D'Angelo, but didn't have a sample of his DNA to prove the match. Um, so Detective Paul Holes, who was a detective in Martinez, California, which is right outside of, like, Sacramento, um, he was vital in this process. He had been working on the case for over 24 years after he found some cold case files at his work relating to the East Area Rapist in 1994 when he first began his career. Yeah, this is actually kind of, like, controversial because <laughs> he was working this case for 20 years and if you guys all watch the ID documentary on Hulu, I think it is, he's like, if you know any, you know, details to the case, call me, because before they know who he is. This is kind of controversial because he got the idea, and I think it was from actually Michelle. Michelle McInerney. Yeah, I think she actually kind of implanted the idea, like, hey, why don't you try, like, 23andMe? But the thing is, with 23andMe, you have to spit in a tube. And they obviously don't have the, the, you know, Golden State Killer spit. So they had to come up with DNA a different way. And he got the idea to, you know, do this. And they, they had, they didn't really have enough DNA, so they had to call around to find DNA. And this Jed Match place would accept a digital DNA sample. So they were able to take the semen from multiple places and like this, the Smith's residence uh, crime. But it's controversial because he made a fake name and made a fake profile and uploaded his DNA and found his relatives. And now I think that it's actually like this this thing where it's like, should we be, can we be allowed to use this for criminals? So when I did uh, 23andMe, and I'm sure it was happened the same when you did it. Um, it makes you go through all of these agreement forms asking, can they use your DNA for this? Can you use your DNA for that? And I don't think I noticed that using it in a criminal case was on there. So Yeah, because yeah. technically what he did was wrong. Like, Jedmatch, he he fooled Jedmatch. He, he did not do it the right way. And I can't remember exactly how they cut around this tape. To allow this in the case, um, but somehow they did, and I mean, I was talking about this with my friend, and I was like, honestly, I think it should be allowed. I think it should be allowed to use, you know, DNA they find at a crime, and I think they should be allowed to put it in one of these sites to find a a criminal. I mean, this criminal, he did horrific, horrific things, like, if I was this guy, this guy was like, I have no, I have exercised everything else I can think of. Mm-hmm. I don't know what else to do. So he does this. And, you yep, know... It paid off. It paid off. It paid off. Yeah, so it, it actually... They uh, 
And the thing was, it wasn't as easy like, boom, there he is. Yeah. It was a whole tree of relatives of relatives of relatives. Because when you do one of these things, and if you've done one of them, it tells you, hey, this person might be your second or third cousin twice removed. Like, it's something really weird like that. Mm -hmm. I had some guy, I did it, and he's from, like, Florida. He's like, I think think I went to high school with you. And I was like, no, I don't think so. But (laughs) it says you might be my third cousin, so... Maybe that's true. I don't know. Kind of weird. It almost felt like the guy was hitting on me, and I was like, we might be third cousins. That's weird. We don't do that here in California. We don't do that here in California. Sorry. <laughs> nope. But, uh, you know, they, they have this big tree, and then they went through it, and they tried to narrow it down to uh, family members that kind of fit the profile that they had come up with, and they mm-hmm. actually came down to about five suspects from this pool of genes. And the first pick was living out in Colorado, and I don't remember what the circumstances were, but they ended up ruling him out. So then they came back, and they're like, okay, these are our remaining suspects. And one of the technicians ran the DNA again, and she's like, look, running this DNA, it says this guy is probably prematurely balding, and he has blue eyes. And a tiny penis. How weird. <laughs> yeah. you get that from that DNA. Can we put that on people's tenders? I don't know. Just, just kidding. Um, I didn't say that. <laughs> you know what? It doesn't matter about the size, Katie. It's how you use it. Okay. Okay? Okay? Okay. Stand up for all you small men out there. Anyways... Um, yeah, so it said blue eyes, and so they looked at the suspect's driver's license for California, and there was actually only one suspect with blue eyes. Freaking Joseph D'Angelo. So in April of 2018, detectives lifted traces of D'Angelo's DNA from his car door handle. He drove a white 2014 Toyota Camry, 2016 Suzuki motorcycle, and a white Toyota Tacoma. Okay, this guy was riding a motorcycle in his <laughs> right. 70s. Yeah, but then he's in a real trailer in the uh, trials. I don't think so. Um, but anyway, I'm not sure exactly which car he was driving that day, but those are cars that were they were They were following him around for like a week before yes. they even got some of this stuff. So. Oh yeah, they were outside of his house um, to track his movements, and they actually also took trash from outside of his home, like rifling through his garbage can including tissue with more DNA. <laughs> um, Paul Holes was outside of his house like the day before his job. retirement, <laughs> like doing surveillance. Uh, but anyway, so they got the DNA from his car door handle while he was inside the Roseville Hobby Lobby. <laughs> so <laughs> D'Angelo was actually really into building model boats. Trying to get um, his craft on, later, So he was getting his craft on at the Hobby Lobby. You gotta get that glue. You know Lobby. what, though? I went to Hobby Lobby the other day. They got everything. I love Hobby Lobby. I love it. I love it so much. Someone gave me a gift card there for my birthday, and it was probably the best birthday gift I got. Yeah, like, I don't, you know what, Joe? I don't even blame you for going inside Hobby Lobby. But to, like, get a... <laughs> The only thing that I'll say about Hobby Lobby oh, is why do you guys start advertising Christmas decorations when Easter just happened? So I was there not long ago, and they had all their Christmas stuff and no Halloween. And I was like... It's because it's a Christian what? store. That's true. Hobby Lobby is owned by like a Christian company. So That's like true. I didn't actually know that until recently. I was in the line, and I was looking... Uh, you know what the stuff in line the impulse buys and yeah. it's all Christian books I'm like this is unusual and then I was talking to my friend they're like oh yeah you know Hobby Lobby's like a Christian store right and I was like that's why they were playing oh how great thou art on the radio <laughs> it's the homeschool warehouse <laughs> how do I don't know about this yeah yeah but, so um, then on April 23rd 2018 the DNA test came back Matching D'Angelo to the Golden State Killer. Hundred percent. Yes. A 40-page arrest warrant was written, partly by Detective Paul Holes, and signed by Sacramento Superior Judge Which, by Steve the way, White. Detective Paul Holes is, like, the real hero of the story. Yeah. And he's actually, like, pretty attractive for an old guy. You seen him? I tap that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Paul Holes. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so, uh, the warrant was signed by Sacramento Superior Court. Okay, can I just say real quick? I was watching this documentary with Paul Holes in it, yeah. and there's a scene where <laughs> they're, like, talking about, like, many of the escape canals that the Golden State Killer would have ran, and they're just showing Paul Holes, like, running. 
Right, he's running in his, like, workout gear, and he's running, he's getting his workout on, and it's just, like... <laughs> then he just takes off his shirt. No, <laughs> I mean... my dream. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Whoa, no. No, but it was just kind of oh, funny, because it was, like, okay, he's fit, and he obviously had to film this scene. Probably multiple times. How awkward. <laughs> Come on, go with it. Oh, man. They're like, all right, Paul, so what you're gonna do is just get down that canal and just run. Just run. <laughs> As sexy as you can. Yeah. I don't even know what we're talking about right now. Uh, we're talking about D'Angelo getting arrested at his home in Citrus oh, Heights yeah. <laughs> on April 24th. With a roast. With a roast. Um, and his daughter, Misha, and her daughter, um, who was a teenager at the time, were actually living with him um, when he was arrested. So um, I'm sure that was a... You know. Do you know if they were home when he was arrested? I haven't noticed any article saying if they were home or not, so I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, unless this man was going <laughs> to annihilate entire roast by himself, and <laughs> maybe they were. But, um, I mean, Misha... It's just well, such, like, there... an old white guy thing. Yeah. Like, or just, I'm sorry, any old white person thing. Yeah. I'm cooking a roast. Like, what the... <laughs> yes. No one cooks My a roast, roast anywhere. <laughs> Have you ever made a roast? No. Never. Me either. I've never made a roast. I don't even know if my mom's made a roast. Like, I can't. My mom's made a roast. She used to make them for Christmas, but we yeah, haven't okay, had Okay, but for Christmas. But yeah, for Christmas. It wasn't like on April any old 24th. April 24th. Don't you know why people eat ham on Easter? Yes. Come on. Citrus Heights. Um... Anyway, I mean, I hope his daughter and then his granddaughter weren't home. His granddaughter was, like, I think 16 or 17 at this time. That's, you know, that's crazy. He was charged in Sacramento County with two counts of murder for Brian and Katie Maggiore, which was in February 1978, with special circumstances of multiple murders. Ventura County files charges for the March 1980 murder of Lyman and Charlene Smith, with special circumstances of multiple murders, burglary, and rape. The next day, on April 25th, at 2.30 in the morning, D'Angelo goes through the booking process and is placed in jail, and Orange County then files four murder charges for the murders of Keith and Patrice Harrington in August of 1980, Manuela Whithun in February of 1981, and Janelle Cruz in May of 1986. On April 27th, his arraignment in Sacramento County happens, with no plea entered. The defense asks that no more evidence be taken from the Golden State Killer, but Sacramento Judge Michael Sweet rules against this and gives prosecutors permission to collect more DNA and take photographs of his body, including genital region, to confirm the victim's statement that D'Angelo has a small micropenis. I just like the judge, though. Nah. Let them see the small penis. <laughs> I mean, no offense to you guys that, uh, you know, are not totally endowed, but this guy does not deserve respect. He's a total piece of shit, so... He's an asshole and he has a small penis, and... and Sorry I, about that, dude. I feel like the small penis was, like, some kind of, like, this is why I do what I do kind of thing, so... Nope. So on May 10th, Santa Barbara County charges D'Angelo with first-degree murder in the deaths of Robert Offerman, Deborah Manning, Sherry Domingo, and Gregory Sanchez with special circumstances including rape, burglary, and use of firearm. Courts held up through May on whether or not to unseal his arrest and search warrants to the public and media. Documents were unsealed in early June and made public, although some were heavily redacted to keep personal information about the victims private. On June 29, 2020, just a couple of months ago, Joseph D'Angelo entered a guilty plea for 13 homicides, 13 counts of kidnapping with intent to rob, and admitted to dozens of rapes and other offenses. On August 21, 2020, he was given the maximum sentence afforded by the law, with 11 consecutive life sentences without parole. Yeah. Now, he didn't get to necessarily plead guilty to all 50 rapes because of the statute of limitations, unfortunately. Yeah. But I'm sure it went a long way with a lot of victims and victims' family, yeah. though, that he had to admit to them. There were a lot of rape victims that still spoke, you know, out, basically, yeah. and they, they played a role in the trial. 
Oh, during the trials, he tried to appear as a weak old man in a wheelchair with a weak and strained voice. <laughs> this guy deserves a freaking award. Like, every time the judge is like, do you understand what you're pleading guilty for? Or, like, how do you please? He's like, um, guilty. Like, like with a freaking wavering <laughs> voice. And they wheeled out in a wheelchair. When, when this guy was arrested in 2018, he was riding a motorcycle around. He was mowing his front lawn. And the DA has released footage that, unbeknownst to Joseph, is filmed in his cell. And they showed a video of him when he first was caught, a video like eight months later, and another video right before his trial. And this guy is totally active. Like, he is doing jumping jacks. He's jumping up on a desk in his cell and, like, taping a paper to cover the light because it's too bright in his room. He's, like, mopping the floor. This guy is, he's all around. Like, (laughs) what the heck? Yeah, he's definitely not just some old grandpa in a wheelchair. I saw this, uh, I was watching, I don't know, I think you tagged me in on something on Instagram, like it was his trial. And I love to read the comments on Instagram because people are just morons. They're just freaking morons. And someone commented on there like, wow, look at this old old man that's probably being charged for something he didn't do and he has no oh idea what's God. going on and I was like that's you, what he wants you to freaking think. moron he wants you to think but you know they had no idea who the Golden State Killer no. was at all at all no people were terrified of this guy terrified and rightly so um you know just oh he did such awful things and he knew what he was doing and you know he obviously didn't feel any remorse he didn't turn himself in he kept making calls up until 2001 he's just awful so uh the trial had to be one of the weirdest things to see it's uh, definitely historic because of the pandemic um they used a ballroom at sacramento state as a courtroom and had everyone spaced out the six feet apart yeah Um, and they were wearing masks and d'angelo had to wear one of the clear face masks so that you can see you know his reactions to everything and when he was speaking it's so weird because because they have to space everyone six feet apart they had to put them in a bigger room so that's why they rented the ballroom yeah and then i was watching Which i've been in multiple times <laughs> i've watched like some of the videos of the victim statements and it's all done over zoom Which, I Mm -hmm. mean, if you are a child of 2020, you know what Zoom is by now because everyone Zooms now. But it was just, it was such a weird thing that it's like, this is happening. I'm I'm glad, to be honest, they didn't postpone the trials because of the pandemic. Yeah, died and I mean, I'm glad that he, you know, he, he could die any day, but I'm glad that he, you know realizes he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail yeah and that you know a lot of people got justice and you know he didn't get away with this yeah well that is it for the golden state killer um we kind of want to just you know quickly uh name some of our sources for this series i don't know about you but i am ready to say goodbye to the golden saint killer my brain has been (laughs) just fueling on this guy for the past like month and a half and i'm sure all my friends and family are ready for me to stop talking about this (laughs) it's like oh we're eating nachos did you know that golden state killer randomly (laughs) they're like okay we don't need to hear about that can you shut up (laughs) yeah we're eating i'll never eat roast again i don't know if i can honestly (laughs) i mean i didn't need it before so so weird just think of the grinch and he coughed the roast beast So some of our sources we want to cite, um, I'll Be Gone on the Dark, which is a book and a documentary, uh, Sudden Tear, the book, Frozen in Fear, the book, which is actually written by one of the victims. It's a pretty good read. The Golden State Killer, It's Not Over. It's a documentary that actually was released before they caught him, so it's actually pretty interesting to see how they were thinking what their theories were. Killers Keep Secrets, The Golden State Killer's Other Life, the that's book. That's actually the book that's written by his brother-in-law, James right, Cuddle, Sharon's right. brother. Um, ABC News, Oxygen, the 1962 L. Oro 
Folsom High School yearbook. That's where we have the picture from him, which we got from the Folsom Historical Society. Um, we have several newspaper articles we've gathered from the Sacramento Bee, the Placer Herald, the LA Times, and we also rated the arrest files and documentations from the police forces. Again, we just want to thank you guys for listening in as we wrap up this third episode on the Golden State Killer. We hope you enjoyed the Golden State Chiller while listening to this. We definitely have been. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this Woodford Reserve bottle is empty right now. This is kind of ridiculous. Um, We have a couple other episodes coming up. We hope that you will continue to follow us. We're going to be focusing our next episode section on Scott Peterson, which Mm -hmm. is pretty current right now. We're going to be talking um, in the future, too, about Dorothea Planta, who's also in Sacramento. Ed Kemper from Santa Cruz. So we got some uh, pretty cool true crime stories coming for you guys. Some more delicious cocktails made by us, um, of course, to match the killers. So... Uh, yeah, we're going to have some fun, and we hope you guys are going to stick with us. We are hoping to put out an episode every single week, um, so go ahead and follow us. Follow us on Instagram so that you can stay current with everything we're doing. Crimes and cocktails. Crimes and cocktails. And if you have any interesting information about the cases that we are discussing, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at crimes.cocktails at gmail.com. Anything you have interesting or photos or interesting pieces of history, whatever you want to email us to, we'd love that. We'd feature that on our Instagram. Um, like I said, we've never done this before, so we're starting out. This is new to us. Um, we've enjoyed doing this. We, you know, we mm-hmm. we already our minds are totally functioning in this weird part of true crime <laughs> history. So if you're in there with us, we hope you'll continue to stay with us. Uh, anyways, hope yeah. you have a good night. Yeah, and, and take some ibuprofen and go to bed. And cheers. <laughs> yeah. Link. Have a good night.